everyone. Hello. We hope you're doing well. Yesterday, as we were doing a routine check on Apple Podcasts, we came across a really startling discovery. We had a new review. Little did we know, it was going to be the wake-up call that we needed. Yes. It was simple, really, but it opened up our eyes. Childish, it said. Commentary by 12-year-olds, it said. I gotta say, the author did a great job of making us feel like we weren't doing what we set out to do. He really did. We realize now that maybe we aren't cut out for serious topics such as Mothman, Astral Planes, the Yeti, Buddhism. Sometimes being a child isn't the answer. And this review really taught us that. With all this being said, we've decided that because of our difficulties promoting these topics in a serious light, this will be our last episode. Yes, it is. We wanted everyone to know that we've enjoyed our time with you, but we now know that you do deserve better. With that being said, let's go ahead and start the show. Psych, bitch. We aren't going anywhere. We don't give a shit. You can't make me feel bad because I already hate myself. This podcast is for fun. We aren't even 12, you idiot. We love how stupid this podcast is sometimes. Yeah, it helps us forget that the generations before us bought houses without a credit score. You literally can't make us feel bad because we're numb to the sadness. It's numb. only up from here, mofos. Welcome up. to the long road home. What's up, everybody? We hope everyone out there is doing well, even the guy who left us our very first negative review. Yeah, you know what they say, you can't make everyone happy, but this podcast is one of the few things that gives me great joy these days, and I know that we are both happy to be back here with you, our wonderful listeners. You are correct, sir. So, Chad, what are we talking about today? Well, as I jump between career choices faster than a kid on a pogo stick this week, I realized we haven't looked at one of my favorite unsettling inanimate objects. They float along the open ocean without destination or crew. Lifeless, they creak along until they pass by some unsuspecting crew of sailors on the high seas, bringing with them their warning of the danger the ocean can hold. Batten down the hatches, boys, and break out your sea shanties that be so hip today because we're talking about ghost ships. We've got a couple here for you today, so don't eat all your citrus fruits too quickly, get, <laughs> lest you get the scurvy. <laughs> Yerg. Yerg. Ghost ships. We're talking about ghost ships today. Uh, I, oh, it's so creepy to me. Ghost boats. Yeah, these pop up like in things that I'm reading and just things that I come across on the internet every now and then. And then I remember just how much I enjoy reading about how like mysterious they can be. So we've got two for you today. The second one is, it is a ghost ship, I guess you would technically, it's a ghost ship. But the story behind it is more about like what happened to the crew. Uh Yeah, it's all very spooky stuff though. But before we begin, let's go ahead and thank our sources for today's episode. We've got a couple of articles from Wikipedia, a really great article from Mental Floss that I pulled a lot of uh, information from, an article from allthatsinteresting.com, another one from marineinsight.com, one from rmg.co.uk, and lastly, Smithsonian Magazine. All right, so Emily, why don't you go ahead and start us off? The first ghost ship we'll be talking about is a classic, the Mary Celeste. The Mary Celeste was an American merchant brigantine built in Spencer's Island, Nova Scotia. The ship was constructed of locally felled timber. She was carvel built, which means the whole planking was flush rather than overlapping. Yeah, didn't Cause I? Because I, I know what that means. I, basically, it's like instead of the planks like sitting on top of one another as it 
as the boat curves, they stick side by side together, and there's caulk put in between the planks to seal it. Understood. Yeah. Thank you. That's my ship knowledge. That's all that I know. Well done. No, yeah. you, you had it locked and loaded. It's not made of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Launched under British registration as Amazon in 1861, the boat had several run-ins with bad luck during its time under British ownership. For her maiden voyage in June 1861, Amazon sailed to five islands to take on a cargo of timber across the Atlantic to London. After supervising the ship's loading, Captain McClellan fell ill. His condition worsened, and Amazon returned to Spencer's Island, where McClellan died on June 19th. It's not a great start not for the a, ship. Not a good start. Yeah, within like two weeks, your captain kicks falls the bucket. ill and kicks the bucket. Yeah, not a good omen. John Nutting, oh, excuse me, that's... That's his middle name. <laughs> his middle name is Nutting. <laughs> yeah, he probably switched him, honestly. He's pro- it probably was John Parker Nutty, and he was like, it's not good. <laughs> you think that that's what the that's what uh, nutting was a euphemism in the 1800s? It could have been. I don't know. When did nutting? Where did become, nutting come from? Don't know. Don't Where know. Where did it even come from? I don't know. We're being very because unserious your, right now. Oh shit! Ah, <laughs> oh, dang it! <laughs> All right. Last time we talk about it. It's probably because. Well, when at what point do we see the testicles being called nuts? Don't know. Don't still just there's a list of questions developing here that we don't have the answers for. You know, that's another episode. You guys know, email (laughs) us the LRH show at gmail.com. Okay, serious time. It's this is serious. John Nutting Parker took over as captain and resumed the voyage to London, in the course of which Amazon encountered further misadventures. She collided with fishing equipment in the Narrows off Eastport, Maine, and after leaving London, ran into and sank a brig in the English Channel. Finally, in 1867, she ran ashore during a brutal storm at Cape Brenton Island, Nova Scotia. The ship was so badly damaged, the crew abandoned the ship there. Eventually, the derelict ship was acquired by a man named Alexander McBean, who then sold the ship to an American man named Richard Haynes in 1868, who renamed her the Mary Celeste. Okay, so we got a boat. Said boat goes off on its first journey. The captain dies almost immediately. After it gets a new captain... We have multiple accidents. Bought, it's purchased, sold and purchased, sold and purchased again. Now it's the Mary Celeste. Okay. After spending around $10,000 for the purchase and restoration of the vessel, Haynes named himself captain of the ship. Turns out, maybe Richard bit off more than he could chew because in October of 1869, the ship was seized by creditors. Wah, wah, yeah, he didn't wah. have it very long. I don't think he, I mean, I, he just didn't do shit with it. Uh, except throw himself into massive amounts of debt. Bummer. Didn't work out for him either. Okay. We're starting to see a pattern. So the ship was then sold was so the ship was sold again, then to a New York consortium headed by a man named James Winchester. If you don't know what a consortium is, it's just a group of people also. I had to look it up. Mm. Yeah. Like a group of wealthy people. But yeah, like people. a group of investors that came in and bought the ship together. This consortium gave the Mary Celeste a major glow up. Increasing her length, mm. breadth, depth, and adding a mm. second deck to the ship. Yeah. Oh. She looked good. Work it. <laughs> After all was said and done, the group had spent $10,000 on the improvements, and the ship was ready to sail under the new captain, consortium member Benjamin Spooner Briggs. So this is like, what, the third or fourth captain in a very short period of time? Yeah, in a matter of years. Yeah, not long at all. Okay. So, a little bit about Captain Briggs. Benjamin was one of five children born to another sea captain, Nathan Briggs. 
Literally all but one of them ended up working on the high seas, with two even becoming captains. You can probably imagine what the holidays were like for the one that decided to join the local theater troupe instead. Yeah, not great. <laughs> Sit at the end of the table, just real quiet, yeah. angrily eating whatever terrible gruel they ate I back am, then. I imagine that fifth child was a black sheep. Yeah. At five, though, at five kids, like, are you even watching it anymore? <laughs> like, are you feeding that child? <laughs> like, once you have three, isn't there like... They turn around and just start taking care of each other after a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. A devout Christian at heart, Ben just couldn't resist the allure of his cousin Sarah Cobb. The two married in 1862 and enjoyed an incestuous honeymoon abroad his schooner, the Forest King. Odd name for a seafaring vessel, I think. Yeah, I don't know what he was, you know, why he did that. No clue. I am the Forest King! Sir, you are in the ocean. (laughs) Sir, this is the ocean. We're literally surrounded by water. The two eventually had children, while Benjamin became a respected member of the seafaring community. The life he had built, however, was wearing on him, and for a small period of time, he and one of his brothers almost left the ocean to pursue a more stable life. He could have been the forest king. He could have been. He, that's really what he wanted in his heart. It seems like it. I think so. Ultimately, the pair rejected the notion and doubled down on how they were living, with both of them using their savings to purchase a share of a ship. What ship did Benjamin invest in? Why, none other than the Mary Celeste. By October of 1872, Benjamin was preparing to leave on his very first voyage with the ship, bringing with him his wife and infant daughter. His son Oliver was left on land with his grandmother. So, um, you're going to bring the infant, though? I don't really know what he was thinking. I guess, like, I, I never really probably, found any information like, about it either. I'm sure the baby's probably nursing. I'm sure, but, like, why do you bring his wife? I guess it was going to be, uh, it's, it's a long trip. Yeah. It was a new ship. He had to show off. I mean, right. I'd be, I bet he was excited. I bet yeah. he was excited. Yeah, he's like, I got this new boat. This is going to change our yeah. life. We Oliver, finally you're figured staying it out. at your grandmother's. Shut up. Oh, <laughs> poor Oliver. On Tuesday, November 5th, Benjamin, his wife and daughter, and crew of eight men departed from New York City with 1,701 barrels of denatured alcohol in tow. Their destination, Genoa, Italy. I think it's important to note here that most of the crew was people that Benjamin either knew or had been vetted by Winchester, head of the consortium. The ship made anchor at Staten Island to wait out some bad weather and finally headed for open water two days later. This would be the last time any of those aboard the Mary Celeste would be heard or seen from again. Yeah, and this is just the start of uh, uh, another string of terrible luck for this ship. It's not good. Um, They wrote a couple letters here and sent them out to people. Uh trying to let them know like as soon as like uh, the mom wrote to the grandmother was like as soon as if i see anything fun i'll be sure to write oliver about it nope that was it yeah this shirt this ship might have been a little cursed one month later on december 4th a canadian brigantine the de gratia was on its way to genoa carrying petroleum as its cargo approximately midway between the azores and the and portugal's coast the helmsman reported seeing a vessel six miles out and heading towards them The captain of the ship, David Morehouse, began to think something may be wrong as they watched the ship make erratic movements across the water. As the ships grew closer, Morehouse tried to signal the ship, but to no avail. He sent his first and second mates out to the ship to investigate. They determined the ship was, in fact, the Mary Celeste. The men then boarded the ship only to find an unsettling scene. The sails had been set poorly and in an odd manner, and the rigging itself was fairly damaged. Some of the hatches to the lower deck were uncovered, and there was about three and a half feet of water in the hold. 
This sounds like a lot to us, but for a ship of that size and a competent captain, this probably wouldn't have raised any major alarms. Yeah, something I forgot to put in here. There was something called a sounding rod also on the deck, which is something that uh, crew the crew of a ship would use to gauge the depth of water inside the ship. So, like, it was that common for water to be inside yeah. the ship that they yeah. had equipment to measure it. Okay. The ship's only lifeboat was missing, and the binnacle, a waist-high stand that contains the ship's compass, had its glass cover broken. The strangest evidence found was the ship's log, whose last entry had placed them off of Santa Maria Island in the Azores, almost 400 nautical miles or 750 kilometers from where they were now. The crew also found that the ship's paperwork was missing, along with the captain's navigational instruments. As the men continued to search the ship, they found no sign of imminent danger or a hasty exit by the people on board. For the most part, everything was exactly where it should have been, including the cargo. Weird. So, yeah, most of every, everything was pretty much there. Um, Except for the lifeboat. Yeah. And there was a lot of water. To us, there was. But right. Like, but it wasn't like... Because of a ship that, yeah, a, a ship that size, that's really, I mean, it's not enough to really cause... Captain Briggs was a pretty competent guy from what I gathered, and so I think that with the amount of water that was in there, he wouldn't have been panicking. So, and they also found uh, a sword in his room as well. There was just like, I don't know, it was just a weird consortium of things that were going on around them. It was really eerie. I like how you used the word consortium. Did I? I guess you I did, didn't I? consortium. You learned a new it's word. It's a group of things. <laughs> I've learned, I learned so much stuff about the ocean when I was reading this, and that's one of the things I learned. A consortium has consortium. nothing to do with the ocean. No, it doesn't. Uh, but I did learn a lot about the sea. So, yeah, weird things are happening on the Mary Celeste. Um, I'm also really curious about the it moving erratically. I guess that has to do with the way that it was rigged and the like broken yeah. riggings. But um, yeah, the way the the cells were set, and it yeah. just sounds like everything was in like just disheveled. It was just a little off. Everything that was still on board it seemed like something happened, and it happened fast to me. Whatever. The reason that they were gone, it just something very quickly occurred, and that's why everything is the way that yeah, it is. Yeah, they had to abandon ship. Yeah. I don't know. DeVoe returned to report these findings to Morehouse. DeVoe is one of the mates, by the way. I did, I, this is the first time I wrote his name and didn't mention anything about who he is. So he's one of the mates that was on the ship. DeVoe, our newly named mate, returned to report these findings to Morehouse, who decided to bring the derelict ship into Gibraltar, 600 nautical miles away. This was a change in his course to Genoa, but under maritime law, a salver could expect a substantial share of, a combined, of the combined value of the rescued vessel and the cargo, the exact award depending on the degree of danger inherent in the salvaging. So you could get a reward for like helping collect the ship. Yeah, if you found something just floating around and you brought it back, depending on how hard it was, you got money for it. And this was, I guess, a especially hard because he halved his crew and put half on that ship and half on his. And so they were both running with half the amount of people they needed to operate the ship. And so it made it extremely difficult. Yeah, 600 nautical miles. That's a That's long a journey. long way. The weather was relatively calm for most of the way to Gibraltar, but each ship was seriously undermanned and progress was slow. De Grazia reached Gibraltar on December 12th. Mary Celeste had encountered fog and arrived on the following morning. She was immediately impounded by the Vice Admiralty Court to prepare for salvage hearings. DeVoe wrote to his wife that the ordeal of bringing the ship in was such that, quote, I can hardly tell what I am made of, but I do not care so long as I got in safe. I shall be well paid for the Mary Celeste. So Morehouse brings the Mary Celeste to Gibraltar with no idea of what exactly happened to the crew. 
hoping to be well paid for the salvage operation his crew took on. Before that could happen, though, a salvage hearing would have to take place in what's called, you guessed it, salvage court. The salvage court hearings began in Gibraltar on December 17, 1872, under Sir James Cochrane, the Chief Justice of Gibraltar. The hearing was conducted by Frederick Solly Flood, Attorney General of Gibraltar, who was also Advocate General and Proctor for the Queen in her Office of Admiralty. Flood was described by a historian of the Mary Celeste affair as a man, quote, whose arrogance and pomposity were inversely proportional to his IQ, and as, quote, the sort of man who once he had made up his mind about something couldn't be shifted. Yeah, he was thick-skulled. I think that's what you call that in uh, more or less words these days. Yeah, that's a nice way of saying you're really stubborn. Yeah, once again, these people were getting paid by the word in the 1800s. <laughs> Absolutely right. Testimonies of the crew somehow convinced him that a crime against the crew had undoubtedly been committed. He then began an investigation of the ship, which found a few things, including cuts on the side of the bow and what appeared to be blood on the captain's sword. Ultimately, he concluded that the crew had gotten into the alcohol and murdered the Briggs family and ship officers, then ran away in the lifeboat. Furthermore, he was convinced that Morehouse was hiding something from him about the vessel. He had a particularly hard time believing the ship had drifted as far as they claimed. He also began to believe that James Winchester had played a part in the mutiny and had hired people he knew would be willing to kill Briggs. So, James Winchester arrived in Gibraltar on January 15th to inquire when Mary Celeste might be released to deliver her cargo. Flood demanded surety of $15,000, money Winchester did not have. Man, that cost more than the ship did when they were fixing it. That dude sounds just like the mechanic I left my Nissan Xterra with when he told me my transmission went out. <laughs> He wanted me Seriously. to, yeah, it's fucking jipping me, ripping me off, rip this dude off. Yeah, pay him more in repairs than the actual thing cost. Winchester quickly became aware that Flood thought Winchester might have to do with the ghost ship, and on January 29th, during a series of sharp exchanges with Flood, Winchester testified to Briggs's high character and insisted that Briggs would not have abandoned the ship except in extremity. As this spat continued, Flood's theories of mutiny and murder received significant setbacks when scientific analysis of the stains found on the sword and elsewhere on the ship showed that they were not blood. Weird. Yeah, they never really said what it was either. A second blow to Flood followed in a report commissioned by Horatio Sprague, the American consul in Gibraltar, from Captain Sheffield of the U.S. Navy. In Sheffield's view, the marks on the bow were not man-made, but came from the natural actions of the sea on the ship's timbers. Ultimately, Flood has no real evidence to support his conspiratorial ideas and reluctantly released Mary Celeste from the court's jurisdiction on February 25th. Two weeks later, she left Gibraltar for Genoa with no further incidents. The salvage payment was ultimately decided to be $1,700 or about one-fifth of the total value of the ship and cargo. This was far lower than the general expectation. One authority thought that the award should have been twice or even three times that amount, given the level of hazard in bringing the derelict into port. It seems that this has something to do with Morehouse, as Cochrane's final words were harshly critical of Morehouse for his decision, earlier in the hearing, to send De Gratia under DeVoe to deliver her cargo of petroleum, although Morehouse had remained in Gibraltar at the disposal of court. Cochrane's tone carried an implication of wrongdoing and ensured that Morehouse and his crew, quote, would be under suspicion in the court of public opinion forever. Yeah, for some reason, he really thought Morehouse had something to do with the boat being empty. Don't know what. Uh, but he was very suspicious of him. Huh. Even after he was cleared. 
So, that's the story of the Mary Celeste. What really happened is still a huge mystery, although many theories still linger around. Foul play is still considered by many to be the major reason for this incident, although the person to blame changes. It's been thought that James Winchester used the Briggs family to help commit insurance fraud, although James himself was able to refute these allegations. Others believe that Morehouse was indeed the murderer, somehow laying in the wait ahead of the Mary Celeste and boarding the ship. This idea seems to ignore the fact that the Mary Celeste left port eight days prior to Morehouse's ship, which doesn't, wink wink, hold water. Other theories suggest the crew boarding the lifeboat as a temporary safety measure, but Captain Briggs was competent and this seems unlikely. There are also those that believe natural phenomena such as water spout could have artificially altered the amount of water the ship seemed to be taking on, giving the appearance of sinking. And some even think a sea quake could have caused the alcohol's barrels to rupture, releasing noxious fumes. Whatever the case, the story of the Mary Celeste was never solved. The ship, however, continued to live on and carry with it its string of bad luck. After the hearing, the Mary Celeste sailed mainly in the West Indian and Indian Ocean routes and regularly lost money. In February 1879, the then-captain Edgar Tuttle, Tuttle, is it just Tuttle? Tuttle, yeah. Tuttle, was forced to dock at Island of St. Helena due to illness. He died there shortly after. Then four years later, the Mary Celeste made its final voyage under Gilman Parker. Her cargo? Insurance fraud! Parker misrepresented the worthless cargo he had put together and insured the ship for 30 grand, over three quarters of a million today. Parker set out for Port Al Prince, and on January 3rd, 1885, as the ship approached the port, Parker ran the ship into a well-documented reef, the Rokoloi Bank. This act ripped out the bottom of the Mary Celeste rendering her beyond repair. It was the last voyage of the ship and in proper fashion spelled doom for the crew involved. When the consul reported that what he had brought was almost worthless, the ship's insurers began a thorough investigation which soon revealed the truth of the overinsured cargo. In July 1885, Parker and the shippers were tried in Boston for conspiracy to commit insurance fraud. Parker was additionally charged with, quote, willfully casting away the ship a crime known as baratry, and at the time carrying the death penalty. Ooh. Yeah, they were serious about uh, chips. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? Serious about that insurance fraud. The conspiracy case was heard first, but on August 15th, the jury announced that they could not agree on a verdict. Some jurors were unwilling to risk prejudicing Parker's forthcoming capital trial by finding him guilty on the conspiracy charge. Rather than ordering an expensive retrial, the judge negotiated an arrangement whereby the defendants withdrew their insurance claims and repaid all they had received. The Baratree charge against Parker was deferred, and he was allowed to go free. Nevertheless, his professional reputation was ruined, and he died in poverty three months later. One of his co-defendants went mad, and another killed himself. It seems that in her final act, the Mary Celeste did what the courts could not and once more took her crew to the grave. Yeah, that ship was definitely cursed. Absolutely. She was absolutely cursed. Yeah, never seemed to really get going. Never had a lot of positive things happen. It's a strange story. It really is. And the ship itself has a strange history. I wonder what happened. Like, what went into her making that made her so cursed? Fucking Satan, I guess. Satan I don't know. himself. Maybe. Uh, I, I really don't know. I, I don't hear, I guess about a ship that acts as poorly surviving for so long. 
Yeah, that's just like, another point. The fact that it just was sold and resold after so many incidents. Um, I thought that's I thought that sailors were a little more superstitious. Once again, like a bad used car. Just passing hands. Gotta get those car facts. Gotta get those ship facts. Yeah, I need them for this one. Alright, so that story is probably one of the most well-documented ghost ships in written history. The next one is, or at least was, a lesser-known tale of a pair of ships lost to the frigid ice of the Arctic. Now, you're going to hear the tale of the HMS Erebus, the HMS Terror, and Franklin's Lost Expedition. Let's go! So, like I said earlier, this one's a little bit even less about the... Like, ghost ships, obviously, we're not talking about spooky ships, right? We're talking about strange things that happen, almost like a missing 411 of the sea. And this one is especially in that same missing 411 vein because to this day we still don't really know what happened to the crew. So let's start with the man of whom the expedition is named for. Sir John Franklin was born in Spilsby, a village in the English country of Lincolnshire in 1786. By marriage, he was a step-cousin of Royal Navy Captain Matthew Flinders, who inspired Franklin to join up when he was only 14. Franklin, at that age, circumnavigated Australia with Flinders in 1802 to 1803, served in the Battle of Trafalgar during the Napoleonic Wars, and fought in the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. Wow. This dude's teenage years were wild. He yeah. did a whole lot of stuff. That's a lot of life in a, short bit of t- in a short bit of time. It is. His actions caught the eye of Sir John Barrow, who in 1818 organized an expedition to look for a northwest passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific, a route that would prove to be a lucrative trade route to Asia. Barrow is also basically the head of the British Navy. Gotcha. Barrow's expedition consists of four Navy ships, the Isabella and the Alexander that would explore the eastern Canadian Arctic, and the Dorothea and Trent that would attempt to sail over the North Pole by way of eastern Greenland and Spitsbergen. So, during this first expedition, Franklin commanded one of the four vessels, the Trent, at a very young age, but pack ice and violent storms forced both of the ships on that mission to turn around. The other two ships were also forced to turn back, but it's because they believed that they had discovered that the path was impassable due to a mountain range. Gotcha. Uh, One of the guys that uh, was involved in that expedition ended up getting, like, a lot of crap for that. He, He turned back before he even got to the mountains, and so people gave him a lot of shit. I always wondered, like... But how did the people that gave him shit know? Well, how, did, how did they know? Did just, the crew rat him out? Well, no. I mean, it came back in his report, I guess, that he turned around. It was like, there's no pass here. Because they were looking, they spent a lot of time looking for this passageway. Like, hundreds of years, basically, between ships and missions and stuff. It was a lot that went into it. So, so then, like, why were other people mad at him, though, if it was not, if it was impassable? Like, how do they know? Because, That's all I'm saying. It's just, I always thought that was so interesting. Yeah. These stories of, like, explorers going to find a thing, and then they come back, and they're like, well, we didn't find it. And everyone gets, like, mad at them. But, like, they, the other people didn't try. It's no different than, like, the angry YouTube commenters. Yeah, exactly. Really. That's exactly it. It's not. They, you know, they got nothing. And like, this you guy, don't know? He did the work. Yeah. All he did was bitch. Yeah. Eventually, though, Franklin was called upon again to try and locate the passage, this time via an overland expedition that would explore subarctic Canada in 1819. So the first time he tried didn't go so well, but the second attempt brought with it absolute disaster. His route would take his party, which included physician and naturalist Sir John Richardson, three naval personnel, and a crew of voyagers from Hudson Bay to the Coppermine River Delta on the Arctic Ocean. So very quickly, disaster struck. 
The party failed to return to their base camp before cold weather set in, their canoes fell apart, and they ran out of food. Wow, that's bad. Yeah, and a voyager allegedly killed and ate several men. So this story I had to look up because it's wild, and it, it's absolutely crazy. So at some point on their return trip, while they were trying to get back to their camp, they split up. They took the, the voyagers on one side and Franklin and uh, the rest of the party on the other. Franklin was going to go look for food at a decrepit military base while the other voyagers moved ahead, but eventually the voyagers decided that they couldn't go any further and asked him if they could go back to a camp that they had left behind with some of the other weaker men. And Franklin said yes. But of the voyagers, the four of them who had left Franklin's party to return to uh, the camp, mm. only one of them, a man named by the, whose last name I think is Terrell Hot, reached, reached the camp. Yeah. And... Uh, he had taken several days to cover the four miles from where they left Franklin. He told the people there that he had become separated from the others and assumed that they would be following. Whatever doubts that the officers there may have had about his story gave way to gratitude when he presented them with the meat, which he said had come from a hare and partridge he had managed to kill on the way. Two days later, he went hunting and brought back meat he said came from a wolf he had found. They were delighted and eagerly devoured the meat. Over the next few days, however, Terrell Hot's behavior became more and more erratic. He disappeared for short periods, refusing to say where he had gone. When asked to go hunting, he refused, replying that there are no animals. You had better kill and eat me. He later accused the Britons of having eaten his uncle. So he started to go wild. He's just losing his mind slowly. He's getting Arctic fever. At some point, and one of the men, Richardson, one of the officers, wrote a, a lot of this comes from his journal, and so it's, his, it's unclear on when, but Richardson and another man named Hood begin to suspect that Terre Haute had killed the three missing voyagers and was disappearing from camp to feed on their corpses. The, quote, wolf meat that they had eaten was probably human flesh. So he was feeding everybody, these other three men. On the 20th of October, while Richardson and Hepburn were foraging, they heard a shot from the camp. They found one of the, other, one of the officers, Hood, dead and Terre Haute standing with a gun in his hand. His explanation was that Hood had been cleaning his gun and that it had gone off, shooting him through the head. It was self-evidently absurd, though. The rifle was too long for a man to shoot himself with, and moreover, Hood had been shot in the back of the head, oh. apparently while reading a book. But with Terrell Hot stronger than them and armed because he's eaten people, there was nothing the men could do for the next three days as Terrell Hot refused to let them out of his sight, becoming more and more aggressive. Finally, on the 23rd of October... Terrell Hot left for a short time to gather lichen. Richardson took the opportunity to load his pistol and on his return shot him dead. So that's that's what happened on his second expedition. That's Jeez. only one of the small terrible things that happened. Uh, Franklin and the others who did not find food, they went to a fort looking for it and the, the fort was abandoned. There was no food. They survived by nibbling on shoe leather. On the brink of death, they were saved by a group of uh, native First Nation guides called Yellow Knives, who brought food and supplies. When he returned to England after this three-year calamity, Franklin was hailed as a hero, uh, known as the man who ate his boots. So it's not a great title, but he came back, and they were happy that he was able to at least return. After that, some time passed, and during it, the British Admiralty put together a new plan. There were only a few more unmapped areas of the Arctic, and the discovery of a passage now seemed well within reach. They decided that in the spring of 1845, they would send two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror, into the cold waters of the Arctic. These two ships had proven their resolve during a recent four-year stint in Antarctica. 
Now they would be used to enter into the Lancaster Sound to see if they could continue through the channel and into the Barents Strait and eventually be in Hawaii within a year. Franklin, at this point, was 59. Old and out of shape, he was never considered a contender for captaining one of the two vessels. Thank goodness, honestly. He was, yeah, he was not really up there at this point. He was sort of on the back end of his career. I uh, would be too after eating my own boots. Yeah, seriously, it's just full of leather. <laughs> uh, the Admiralty's top two picks both declined to the offer to sell. So their top picks didn't want it. Yeah, and one of them, Sir William Edward Perry, approached Franklin soon after he was given the offer, hinting to him that he could benefit greatly from this expedition. Franklin had, well, Franklin had been in the shadow of a lackluster attempt as a lieutenant governor of Tasmania, so he was not doing a great job. Uh, people weren't super excited that he was doing it. He came to him and was like, look, you can kind of get some of your clout back by like doing something redemption. like this. Yeah. And eventually, he did press the admiralty for a position, and uh, he was brought on to Captain the Erebus. Dude, that's so crazy. After an experience like the first one, like... <laughs> to even want to go back. To even want to go back is yeah. so nuts to me. Yeah, these explorers, they weren't fucking around. They were really... It's so cool. I imagine, though, it'd be pretty hard to like just be a part of society again after... Yeah, living I'm off sure. Your boots. Absolutely, like being out in the wild and then coming back to like people shitting and throwing it in the street. Probably not great. Yeah, I meant more like the high society aspect of it, but oh. yeah, the shitting in the street too. Yeah, that too. That's probably yeah. They probably don't like the hoity toities. I bet. So Franklin was captaining the Erebus, and a young up and coming captain, James Fitzjames, was to captain the Terror. So James was an illegitimate child whose origins were a closely guarded secret by those around him. So closely guarded in his early life that the identity of his mother still remains unknown. So no one really knows where James came from. Shortly after his birth, he was taken into an adoptive family, that of Reverend Robert Cunningham and his wife Louisa Capper. They were very well off, which allowed James, along with their own son, to have a phenomenal education. James was drawn to the sea at a young age and served as a volunteer on the HMS Pyramus from the ages of 12 to 15. Wow. So, yeah, kids back then were just different. <laughs> they had different ideas of what they were trying to do. The world's changed so much. <laughs> James continued to impress, though, with his exploits all over the world at, during this young age as he tried to find an inroad towards a career in the Navy. During an expedition to create a steamship line in Mesopotamia, he rescued a drowning man and later volunteered to take the mail 1,200 miles across what is now Iraq and Syria to the coast when the steamliner it was on failed. Eventually, through his actions and the friendships he made along the way, he was able to begin a much more conventional career path with the Royal Navy. So he kind of made his own path into it just through the people that he met. At this point, James was a highly qualified gunnery lieutenant and ended up serving in the Egyptian-Ottoman War and another war called the First Opium War, which I don't know what that is. It sounds I'd like to really... More. Yeah, everyone was high. <laughs> so in while he was en route to the First Opium War at, in Singapore, James apparently was able to cover up some sort of scandal involving the eldest of George Barrow's sons. Don't really know what happened. Uh, it was George Barrow Jr., I think, and he had fucked up bad somehow. But James was able to pay someone off. There was n The word never got out about it, and after that, he was held in very high regard with the Barrows. Also during the Opium War, he suffered an injury when a musket ball passed through his arm and into his back, lodging into his spine. What? Fucking awful. Oh. Yeah, absolutely terrible. 
Uh, he spent his time recovering, writing a 10,000-word poem about the war called The Cruise of HMS Cornwallis. And that got put, uh, put up in a Navy journal that they had out at the time, too. So he's a super cool guy. I think he's really cool. He did so much and worked really, really hard to get where he was. Super, yeah, definitely like a badass. A maverick. Old, old school, yeah. After the war, the regard that the Barrows now held for James proved to be fruitful as they sought to promote him to the best assignments that they had. One of these was the Franklin Expedition, and the Barrows were quick to campaign in favor of James captaining one of the ships. And so now, here we are at the beginning of the journey. The two captains, a well-funded mission, they had three years' worth of the best provisions possible, and the two boats had shown their ilk through previous expeditions. Their boats were actually really nice. They had um, almost like central heating. They had a way to heat the whole ship up. They were it was a well-insulated ship. They were both very, I mean, just stout boys. Gotcha. I always wondered about that, about how they did these Arctic I don't know how. Missions yeah. on these like wooden ships. And we'll find out later. Uh, one of they had a uh, small engine on them as well. Wow. So yeah, they were. Uh, from what they I can tell, they seem like they were pretty technologically advanced for their time. The voyage began on May nineteenth, eighteen forty-five, when the ships left England and headed towards the west coast of Greenland. At the Wellfish Islands in Disco Bay, ten oxen carried on the Barreto Jr. were slaughtered for fresh meat, which was transferred to Erebus and Terror. Crew members then wrote their last letters home, which recorded that Franklin had banned swearing and drunkenness. None of that on his ships. So that stop to get meat was the last time anyone ever saw them. The men on those whaling boats were the last ones to see any of that crew from either ship alive. Uh, now, the rest of the story is pretty much made up of uh, testimonies and little bits and pieces of information that they found during the investigation of what happened. So... According to ship records, the sea froze around the Erebus and Terror on September 12, 1846, an event they seemed completely prepared for. They knew that at some point they would be wintering there and that the sea would freeze around them because that's what happened. Right. right. And like I said, only limited information is available after this for subsequent events pieced together over the next 150 years by other expeditions, explorers, scientists, and interviews with the native Inuit people. The only first-hand information regarding the expedition's progress is the two-part victory point note found in the aftermath on King William Island. Franklin's men spent the winter of 1845 and 1846 on Beachy Island, where three crew members died and were buried. After traveling down Pill Sound through the summer of 1846, Terror and Erebus became trapped in ice off King William Island in September and are thought to have never sailed again. So later, a man named Francis Leopold McClintlock, leader of one of the expeditions meant to refine the remains of the crew later, stated that Franklin's chosen passage down the west side of the island took Erebus and Terror into, quote, a plowing train of ice that does not always clear during the short summers. And that's what happened to them. The ice never cleared. Because of this, the Franklin expedition was not locked in ice for one winter, but for two. And they were just stuck. So, regardless of that, though, they they had enough food for three years. Right. According to the second part of the Victory Point note, dated the 25th of April, 1848, and signed by Fitzjames and Crozier, the man who served as his second on the Terror, the crew had wintered off King William Island, like we said, and Franklin had died on the 11th of June, 1847. So, yeah, he didn't make it very far. Yeah. The guy that was, like, in charge of all this, because uh, Franklin was in charge of the entire operation. Fitzjames was captaining the other ship, but Franklin was in charge of the entire expedition. The remaining crew had abandoned the ships and now planned to walk over the island and across the sea ice towards the back river on the Canadian mainland, beginning on the 26th of April, so the next day. 
In addition to Franklin, eight other officers and 15 men had also died by this point. So, this note we're talking about, it was no, it's called the Victory Point Note, and it's the last known communication of the expedition, and it was actually found 11 years after the fact. So wow. it, didn't even, it wasn't even like a thing for a long time. For a decade. And so no one had any clue what had happened. So these notes were left in these big cairns, so these big towers of rock, and they used those to communicate up on the island because that island and its whole surrounding area up there, it's literally just like flat, rocky shell, and there's nothing. Right. And so they would build these cairns and put notes in them for people to find later. In this note, there were the names of the men in the party. Two officers and six men led by a man named Lieutenant Graham Gore. The note was found in a cairn on the northwestern coast of King William Island. After noting the date and position where the two ships were beset in the ice, Gore wrote, quote, HMS ships Erebus and Terror wintered in the ice in latitude 7005 north, longitude 9823 west, having wintered in 1846-7 at Beachy Island in lat 74-43-28 north, longitude 9139-15 west, after having ascended Wellington Channel to latitude 77 degrees and returned by the west side of Cornwallis Island, Sir John Franklin commanding the expedition, all well underlined. Party consisting of two officers and six men left the ships on Monday, 24th May, 1847. Signed, G.M. Gore, Lieutenant. Also signed by the Thank First Mate DeVoe. The second and final part of this note is written largely on the margins of the form due to lack of remaining space. It was presumably written on April 25th as well. H.M. ships Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since 12th De- September, 1846. The officers and crews, consisting of 105 souls under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier, landed here in latitude 69.37.42 north, longitude 98.41 west. This paper was found by Lieutenant Irving under the cairn supposed to have been built by Sir James Ross in 1831, four miles to the northward, where it had been deposited by the late Commander Gore in June 1847. Sir James Ross Pillar has not, however, been found, and the paper has been transferred to this position, which is that in which Sir J. Ross Pillar was erected. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th, June, 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and 15 men. Signed, James Fitzjames, Captain HMS Erebus. Also signed, F.R.M. Crozier, Captain and Senior Officer, and start on tomorrow, 26, for Bax Fish River. So there was an initial note, and then it seems like there was a second note as well. That I was honestly, found in there. it's so intriguing so to me. The, <laughs> the detail left behind by like military members, like even back in the 1850s, 1860s, like that's so crazy to me that they took the time while they're trying to survive to like really document this. I mean, we're grateful for it, so we can have yeah. The story, honestly, but it's it was so very crazy. smart, and it, you know, give them eventually it gave people sort of an idea. Of what yeah, happened. a little bit of closure. In 1859, Hobson also found a second document using the same admiralty form that contained an almost identical duplicate of the first message that was found in that cairn. This one, however, was found a few miles southwest at a place called Gore Point. This document did not contain the second message. So, from the handwriting, it's assumed that all the messages were written by James Fitzjames, as he did not take part in the landing party which deposited the notes originally in 1847. It is inferred that both documents were originally filled out by Fitzjames on board the ships, with Gore and DeVoe adding their signatures being members of the landing party. This is further supported by the fact that both documents contain the same factual errors. They both have the wrong date of the wintering on Beachy Island on there. It's actually crossed out. I didn't say that, but there's like a crossed oh, out word right. that's in there. 
1848, after the abandonment of the ships and subsequent recovery of the document from the Victory Point Cairn, Fitzjames added the second message signed by him and Crozier and deposited the note in the cairn found by Hobson 11 years later. So it's a lot to take in. Basically, a crew came out, placed the note in that he'd written, and later he came out uh, with a, a very similar note, but added the second document, added the second message as well because things weren't going so well. They had abandoned the ship. Franklin was dead and placed that note in there as well. And they, then they were all found later. So I don't know if I know it's a lot of words and a lot going on, <laughs> but if you notice the timeline we've been talking about at this point, the entire crew has been gone for two years and nobody has shown any sort of concern. So no one has came looking for them. They, the, the Admiralty knew that they had enough provisions to last for three years, but they hadn't heard anything, like anything at all. But no one seemed to care. It wasn't until Franklin's wife and several others began pressing the Admiralty that any sort of rescue attempt was made. Beginning in spring of 1848, at exactly the same time that the 105 survivors abandoned the ship, a series of massive search and rescue expeditions began combing the Arctic for clues. On August 27, 1850, a ship discovered the three graves on Beachy Island, the first tangible clue of Franklin's route, but found no letters or records. Despite that important find, subsequent expeditions in 1852 came up empty-handed. Very little else would ever be known by those searching for the 105-man crew. In April 1854, Hudson's Bay Company surveyor John Ray met with several Inuit a few hundred miles east of King William Island. Ray asked if they'd seen white men or ships. And one man said that some families had encountered about 40 survivors marching south along the west coast of the island, dragging a boat on a sledge. This is fucking awful because the way that these people, the, they're Navy men, they're not used to, they weren't meant for land travel, nothing was. They were putting their stuff on uh, these big sleds and they would have to pull everything behind them across rocky terrain. So this is just unbelievably hard work, and these men are starving, and we haven't really brought it up, but for some reason, Crozier decided to head towards uh, the Backs Fish River, and across it was a fort, but this this was like a 400-mile journey for these men on foot. Wow. And it's unbelievable that they made it as far as, you know, however they did, but it's just like the fact they were dragging everything behind them makes it just so terrible to me. Franklin's men appearing thin and low on provisions, imitated to the Inuits that their ships had been crushed and that they were headed toward the mainland, where they hoped to find game. Ray relayed the Inuits' next observations to the Admiralty, and he told them, quote, At a later date the same season, 1850, but previous to the disruption of the ice, the corpses of some 30 persons and some graves were discovered on the continent, and five dead bodies on an island near it, about a long day's journey to the northwest of the mouth of a large stream, which can be no other than Back's Great Fish River. Some of the bodies were in a tent or tents, others were under the boat, which had been turned over to form a shelter, and some lay scattered about in different directions. Of those seen on the island, it was supposed that one was that of an officer, as he had a telescope strapped over his shoulders, and his double-barreled shotgun lay underneath him. From the mutilated state of many of the bodies and the contents of the kettles, it is evident that our wretched countrymen had been driven to the last dread alternative as a means of sustaining life. A few of the unfortunate men must have survived until the arrival of the wild fowl, as shots were heard and fresh bones and feathers of geese were noticed and near the scene of the sad event. So he's saying like they were eating each other. Yeah. And there was uh, some cannibalism that had occurred at the, the makeshift camp that they had found. As you do. <laughs> I mean, what choice do you have in a, such a barren place as right? people start to die? It's a very scary thing that you would have to decide, but um, they did it. Mm-hmm. 
To support the report, Ray purchased artifacts from the Inuit that were clearly tied to the expedition. There were spoons, forks, a star-shaped medal, and a silver plate engraved with Sir John Franklin KCH. In England, the public reacted with shock and disbelief when his account was published in newspapers. Other than the Victory Point note found in 1857, scant evidence was ever found to tell us what exactly happened to the crews of either ship. Hundreds of Inuit testimonies were collected in hopes of a lead, some graves were indeed found, and many other expeditions looked for signs of the crew. Unfortunately, very little information was actually found. While there's a small idea of why the men left, there is nothing to explain where they went. They simply vanished. Crazy. So, like, there were, because what, it was 109, right? There was, like, 109, 105, that, 105 100 people that uh, took off on foot. Yeah. So, they found, what, 35 bodies? They probably, I mean, I'd say, like, probably 30 or 40, it seems like. And so, there's so many people that are still missing. Yeah. So, what did happen? Why did the crews leave? That's one of the big questions to me. Both the ships had a heating system, and they had provisions to last for years. Well, thanks to advances in what else but science in the past several decades, there have been a few breakthroughs and explanations to this mystery. In June 1981, Owen Beattie, a professor of anthropology at the University of Alberta, began the 1845-48 Franklin Expedition Forensic Anthropology Project, or FIFAP for short. I like FIFAP. I like FIFAP. So over 100 years later. Yeah, this is before anything really ever happened. Uh, Beattie and his research team exhumed the three bodies on Beachy Island and conducted forensic testing. What he found was very high levels of lead in all three, as well as in bones previously collected on King William Island. In his 1987 bestseller, co-written with a man named John Geiger, Frozen in Time, The Fate of the Franklin Expedition, Beattie suggested the lead solder used to seal the expedition's canned provisions had leached into the food, resulting in neurological impairment that could have contributed to the men's death. So these men were probably, there's a chance that they were slowly getting lead poisoning through the food that they were given. Dude, that makes this like so much more scarier, honestly. Awful. It's just like, such a people bad People are going crazy events. too. Like you're already in this horrible, horrible situation. Then your food's causing people to yeah, go crazy. Yeah, it's terrible. And uh, I was reading, I can't remember the name. I didn't put it in here, but apparently the company that was making their food cans had a really bad history of something similar to this happening. Spoiled food in the cans. Uh, it just wasn't lasting and stuff like that. So it seems plausible. More recently, historians have moved away from the lead in the cans theory. Oh, really? Yeah, it's uh, super interesting to me that the research now has suggested that there was another potential source for the lead. It may have been in the ship's distilled water systems rather than the tin food. The new research argues that it is impossible to see how one could ingest from canned food the amount of lead required to raise the PPB to the level 80 nanograms per deciliter, at which symptoms of lead poisoning begin to appear in adults and the suggestion that bone lead in adults could be swamped by lead ingested from food over a period of a few months or even three years seems scarcely tenable. In addition, tin food was in widespread use within the Royal Navy at that time, and its use did not lead to any significant increase in lead poisoning anywhere else. Huh. So, uh, so something's in the water. Gotcha. So lead poisoning could or could not have happened. We're still not entirely sure, but it definitely, well, it definitely some, happened. It, it did happen. Yeah. yeah. It, whatever it, it was, like how exactly it was. How did the lead get into them? So it could have been the food. It could have been. I read somewhere that the small engine they had could have gotten lead into the water. But regardless, the FIFAP field surveys, excavations, and exhumations that they did spanned more than 10 years. The results of the studies from King William Island and Beachy Island showed that the Beachy Island crew had most probably died of pneumonia and perhaps tuberculosis, 
which was suggested by the evidence of Potts disease discovered in one of the men. Tox- huh. uh, yeah, so there was a lot of bad stuff happening. Toxological reports pointed to lead poison as a likely contributing factor. Blade cut marks found on bones for some of the crew were seen as signs of cannibalism. And evidence suggested that a combination of cold, starvation, and disease, including scurvy, pneumonia, and tuberculosis, all made worse by lead poisoning, killed everyone in the Franklin party. Yeah, I'd say, uh, like, any one of those things on its own could probably kill you. So brutal. Stacked on top of each other, that's a brutal, brutal death. (laughs) awful way to die on the cold. New scientific developments have also allowed us to locate the ships, which are now sitting at the bottom of the sea. The Erebus was found partially intact, lying in only 36 feet of water at the bottom of Wilmot and Crampton Bay in the eastern portion of Queen Maud Gulf, west of O'Reilly Island. And that was in 2014. In September of 2016, it was announced that the Arctic Research Foundation expedition had found the wreck of the HMS Terror south of King William Island in Terror Bay at a depth of 79 feet, and it was in pristine condition. So it's just sitting down there, and you can go online and look at, like, uh, they sent, like, little cameras in, and you can, like, it's just just perfectly preserved. That's so cool. It's insane. But for now, that's where the story seems to end. Science may continue to improve, but in reality, we'll probably never know what happened to the men of either the Erebus nor the Terror. What we do know is that whatever did happen must have been absolutely frightening. Lost, alone, in a rocky desert, starving and scared, 105 officers and men met their fate at the hands of the frigid Arctic. And that's our episode. Ghost boats. Ghost ships. Yeah, scary stuff. Uh, I do want to let you guys know that AMC did an absolutely wonderful job of taking this second story and turning it into a great piece of television, aptly named The Terror. I will never forget that season of television. It was amazing. It, it, was, was it so blew me good. away. It's so good. It's a supernatural thrill. They they do. I mean, it's obviously it's based on the story. It's a supernatural thriller. It's got uh, the Franklin and Crozier are played by uh, Siron Hines. Is that how you say his name? And Jared Harris, who is the English man on Mad Men. I love Jared Harris. I was so just trying good. to look They're up his so name. Good. I love James J- I freaking love Jared Harris. Yeah, I don't know what it good. is. And he in that show is so good. Yeah, it's a it's really, really good. Everyone that in, in that first season of The Terror is an amazing actor. Second season, meh, I can take it or leave it. You know what? I'm going to say, the actors were fine in the second season. It was more the storyline yeah, that was questionable. I didn't really enjoy the story, but the the first season is amazing. Holly, Holly, encourage you to go watch it now that you've learned about the true story here. Yeah, definitely worth a watch. If you liked any bit of this story, go and watch uh, the AMC television show, Terror. Yeah, go look up more ghost ships because there's a lot of them. I, we only had time for two today, but there are so many more, and I'm sure eventually we'll probably get to them and... Uh, because they're they're all really spooky. Maybe we'll do some actual ghost ships and like haunted ships. We can talk about the Green Flash. Yeah. That all the, the Navy men, the seamen see as well. So <laughs> Spooky sea shanties. The ocean do is it. very scary. Very scary place. And being lost and just never to be found is it's a big, vast, empty garbage bin full of dead people. But is it a soup? Is it a soup? Is the uh, ocean You have to soup? heat soup, right? It is being heated by uh, it is being heated by CO2 global emissions. warming. So yes, okay, it is a soup now. Okay, but yeah, that's our episode, everybody. <laughs> thanks, thanks for so much for listening, guys. We got another great minisode coming at you next Monday. And an awesome a- episode coming next week. Yeah, so please stay tuned to all that we're doing, guys. I will be working on new logos and stuff the next couple weeks as well. I just got an iPad and I'm super excited. So I'm going to be doing all that, and we got a lot of stuff coming down the barrel. So keep hanging out with us, guys, and don't forget. 
Join us on Discord. It's totally free. You can hang out with us. Say hello. We post our source links on there. We post weird memes, pictures, scary stories, everything. There's The link is on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us there at the underscore LRH underscore pod. You can also find us on Facebook at the LRH pod and reach us uh, via email yes. at the LRH show at gmail.com. Yeah, let us know if you have a story that you want to share with us. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, you can join us on patreon.com slash the LRH podcast. Join one of the tiers. Get some cool merch. Hang out. We're going to be doing some special stuff for our patrons in our Discord. So stay tuned for that as well. And I believe that's it. Right, Emily? That's everything. So. As- oh, wait, wait. Um, Don't forget. Leave us a review on Apple, guys. Hey, um, leave us a nice review on Apple if you've enjoyed hanging out with us. We really uh, just wanted to talk about crazy stuff and thought it'd be fun if we did it together and made a show. And here we are months later having put lots of time into this thing that we love to do. And um, yeah, if you have nice things to say about it, please share them with us. Yeah, let us know what you think, guys. We'd love to hear from you. Any press is good press to me. That's true. So, you know, That's true. Uh, say what you want. But leave us a review, guys. Help us get on the new podcast page. We'd appreciate it. Check us out on YouTube. Like and subscribe over there as well. Tell your friends who don't listen to uh, podcasts on their phone for some reason to check us out over there. And that's it. That's right. So, as always, join us next time on The Long Long Road Road Home. Home. Have a great week, everyone. Bye, everybody. Hope you find your dad. (laughs) 